This past garden season, I've been trying to grow a garden, and I, every year I do this, I learn again how growing a garden is a miracle. Every time. Every time it's a miracle. Those of you who garden know, those of you who farm know even better, that any time you've got something to show for your labor, um, praise God, because you know God did it. Um, there's so many variables involved in this. But even at the base essential, I mean, just excluding all the other variables like sun and rain and all the various animals, uh, just the seed. This year I, I planted some uh, vegetables, sunflower, sunflowers and tomatoes, cucumbers and different things by seed. So I had my little miniature greenhouse, you know, and uh, watched it grow and just... It's funny how you delight in seeing a little sprig come up out of the ground. Like, oh, my plant, you know. And you, and you start putting your heart toward it because your energy is going toward it. And, you know, I, I didn't name my plants or anything like that. But I definitely was concerned about them. And so I watched them grow. And, and then I, I put them outside for a certain time and put them in the shade and just did all the right stages. And, and eventually I, I put them in uh, my spot, uh, which I, I learned from last year. We, we've got some... Uh, deer that are very aggressive, and so I thought, well, maybe if I just scatter them in different spots around, and then I get something, uh, some flowers they don't like, and I put them in, in the middle of all those, and I put some right by my front door, and then I put some right by a light, uh, where, uh, right where the driveway is, and I, I just, it was my strategy, I thought, you know, uh, I'm just going to scatter them, and, and see if that just confuses them, and I've got all these, these flowers that, you know, so, out of, out of all the, the cucumbers plants, and I had so many I was giving some away, I've got uh, one plant that I've been eating cucumbers from. Uh, there's one, one or two others that are promising. The others, uh, what, seven, eight? Just demolished. Eight up. I had acorn squash. Had. <laughs> acorn squash and, and various pumpkins and the vines, and they were just growing. I thought, man, this is wonderful. They were taking over my little garden and, uh, I just maybe see a vine or two uh, where it's just been consumed. I have beans, garden beans, and, and I've gotten like maybe, uh, I think we had like one little spot of green beans that we could eat. Uh, you know, they're just, I've got all kinds of tomatoes, cherry tomatoes that are growing and they're not quite red yet, um, but I'm not a big fan of tomatoes, <laughs> you know, so... The one thing I'm not a great fan of, I'm seeming to have a, a large supply of them. Uh, so it's a miracle just though that that little seed comes out of it fruit, comes out of it vegetables. I mean, just you stick it in the ground, you put it in the sun, put it in water, and, and there's something that was magical that happens with that combination that out of it comes life. It is amazing. And then when... You, <laughs> You know, when you, when you are able to get some vegetables that you've, you've battered the animals, you've battered the elements, the rain and all that stuff, and then the miracles, you know, God did it. God did it. And so I think it is so fitting that in Galatians chapter 5, when Paul is trying to describe the character development of a believer, when, when he's trying to describe what's it like to grow with the Spirit of God, to grow by grace, not by the law, he uses the metaphor of fruit. 
We looked at this last week as we studied in Galatians chapter 5. How we were looking at verses 16 through 21 and um, really 19 through 21. And it was just heavy. But the description of our flesh is, is using the word works. We talk about works and, and why it's works. That we are trying to validate ourselves. We're trying to find worth in ourselves, and so we work hard at various ways to validate ourselves, to see ourselves approved before God, before the world, before ourselves, and consequently, because we're working for ourselves, the bad comes out too, and he lists out what the bad is, uh, and, and we looked at this in, in some detail, describing each one of these, the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, Paul's saying, I could go more, go on. There are more. So, so for those of us who are wanting our do not do list, this is, okay, I've got these down, I'm not doing these, then he says, and there's others like these. And we want, well, Paul, can you tell us, can you tell us, can you tell us? Because I'm trying to work on this. And Paul is saying, no, the problem is your flesh. You're self-centered. You're trying to validate yourself. And you use religion. And you use your work. And you use your beauty. And you use your social life. And you use your toys. You use your money. And you use all these things. And so when things don't work out, is there any, uh, any surprise that you have fits of anger and dissensions and envy? And he says these things are side effects of the fact that we're living for ourselves. And it was a hard sermon last week. Um, it, it was just, it was hard for me, it was hard on me, I think it was hard on our congregation, because we keep on reading and, and we think, well, you know, these are just some character faults that we have from time to time, but then we read in verse 21, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, that word who do such things is the, uh, the imperative, the, or the one, the present Tense. In other words, you're, you're continuing to do these things. It's, it's how you're characterized. Those who do these, such things, who are unrepentant and keep doing these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul just says, when you're characterized by this, don't think you've got the Spirit of God in your life. Don't think you're saved by grace. Don't think you're in Christ. If you are characterized by this, Paul says, I want you to know and understand you're not in Christ. Rest assured, God is not excluding the kingdom from all who sinned. He's excluding the kingdom from all who are unrepentant in their sin. And this passage was given with the express purpose of examining your life. And in examining your life from this past Sunday's message, if you find your heart wanting, you find that your life is honestly more characterized by that list, then that is a warning to you. You are not in Christ. I'm just expressing what the scripture is saying here. You're not in Christ. Acknowledge your need before God. Confess your sin. The sin of even trying to 
manipulate God by doing good stuff. Confess that before Him and say before God, God, if you don't save me, I'm not in your kingdom. If heaven is not a gift, I'm not getting in. I am holy, relying, trusting in this thing called the grace of God that's expressed through Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. That's the point of that passage. And I hope it did cause great thought and searching of your heart. It was for that purpose. He goes on now in verse 22. He gives the the contrary. But. But the fruit of the Spirit is. Alright. Now, it's it's a nice uh, listing, organized listing of nine characteristics. But I would just caution you. In the same way that Paul didn't list out all the works of the flesh. I would say he's saying, hey, I'm not giving you all the works of the Spirit either. These are just some. Because the, the thought is, is, okay, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to work on that. And I'm going to have my little daily reminders. I'm going to have my verses I memorize. I'm going to have my accountability partner. I'm going to read the Bible and all the, the verses I can about this. I'm going to do word searches and study. And I'm going to do this. But that's not how it works. That's like that vine working hard and, oh, I've got to make a vegetable. I've got to make a vegetable. No, it's the wrong emphasis. These things are not given to you so that you'll focus on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It's just telling you these are side effects. The side effects of being saved by the grace of God. So what does the grace of God do? Uh, we're looking a little bit about the, the nature of, of the spiritual work in us. And, and so that the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. How does, how does the Spirit of God work this in us? And there's, there's two main components to this. One is heart motivation. I talked with you before about what love is and that we are totally incapable of loving God, loving others, when we are living for ourselves. And what will look like, it'll look more like manipulation, manipulating them so that they will treat us well, so that we'll be happy about ourselves, or maybe that we won't feel guilty about ourselves. And it goes back to the same idea, I've got to validate my worth by loving people. And the problem is that's the work of the flesh. And so love is wholly absent of yourself. And this is where we get all tripped up. Because we don't, we can't do that on our own. And so there's got to be a new motivation. And it's and God is saying, if you let me save you by the grace of God, let me save you by my grace, let me save you by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that your sin is judged already on Jesus Christ. I am no longer your judge because it's been executed, carried out, satisfied on the cross. So don't look at me as a judge anymore. Look at me as your father. You are my son. I grant you freedom. And if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. And so you look at God totally different. I found that if I'm looking at God as my judge, I can't love Him. I can't love Him. I can be afraid of Him. But I can't love Him. And so the grace of God does one component of taking away that motivation of selfishness and giving us a whole new motivation of flat out falling in love with God. That's done by the grace of God. So there's new motivation, 
But then there's another component of the gospel of grace, and that is the Spirit of Christ actually being united with us, enabling us, directing us in His walk. And that's a little bit more of what Paul's talking about at this point. He's talked already about the motivation. And so if you're coming and thinking, I want to become a Christian so I can become a better me. That's not how it works. You become a Christian because you are judged as a sinner before God. And if God doesn't do something, you will forever be left to yourself and all the consequences therein, including eternal death. And so you come to a Savior. And God's working and changing and he's now your father instead of your judge. And he gives us the spirit of Christ in our spirit, which is the very hope of glory. So there's a lot I can do here. I got to focus. All right. Um, three groups of uh, triplets, really. You got love, joy, peace, kind of lumped together. Patience, kindness, goodness lumped together. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. One has described these three groups as the first three dealing with the Christian mind. The second group reflecting social intercourse. And the third guide uh, guiding Christian conduct. Uh, so that's been one person's view of these three. Um, another simply is this is your attitude toward God, toward other people, and to yourself. So let's look at the examples of the Spirit working in us. We've looked a little bit about the nature of the Spirit working in us. That is the fruit. Our focus is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. But our focus is, is every day... I am thinking, God, you saved me and you love me and there's nothing I can do this day that will make you love me more, that will make you love me less. I am complete and satisfied in you. You see me as right. You saved me by the grace of God. You're not my judge. You're my father. It is relishing in that and loving that every day of your life you are being in Christ and you're abiding in Christ. And, and so that's the nature of fruit grows from that type of nourishment. That type of sustenance. That it's not, man, I've got to work better this day so that I'll be better. That nourishment will kill you spiritually. And so the examples. The examples of the Spirit working us. First one, love. And I think it's fitting that it starts with love because it is the source of all the others. Um, and in fact, we've already looked at in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that, that these works of circumcision and the, what the Jews were asking them to do, the ceremonial laws, is just, you know, just do these extra things and you'll be a better Christian. Paul is saying, no, these things count for nothing, but what counts is faith working through love. Galatians 5, 6. And so this is an example. These are exhibitions, if you will, manifestations of faith working through love. Alright, so love, agape, uh, is, it is the source, the fountain for all the other graces. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this, explaining how love is the source of these other characteristics. He says, God who needs nothing, loves into existence, holy superfluous creatures, in order that he may love and perfect them. In other words, he brought into these creatures that were totally unnecessary. He, he brings them into being. So that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe. Already foreseen, or should we say seeing, since there are no tenses in God. So as he creates the universe, he already is aware and sees the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. He already sees the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. 
He already sees the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops. He already sees the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. Just understand that when God saw you coming to existence, he is at the same time seeing Jesus on the cross. I've shared with you time and time before, some people experience some major tragedy in their life and they ask of themselves, is this how God, is this what he thinks of me? Is he some judge that... I knew this bad thing was going to happen because I was such a rotten person as a young person. It was going to come back and haunt me. Is this how God thinks of me? No. When God wanted to express His thoughts towards you, He chose the cross even before you were born. He chose the cross to demonstrate His love to you. It is that knowledge that flows out to understand, I no longer live for myself. I can't live for myself. I live for this one. I live for this one. It is Paul's thought in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Uh, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it, it becomes the source. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at that. Uh, verses uh, especially 3-7. through seven. Um, this is a listing of uh, what love does. We shared before, love actually is not a verb. All right? I know DC Talk said that. Um, but it's really a motivation. A motivation of expressing someone else's needs over your own. It comes out in actions. It comes out in actions. And a listing of some of these actions is found in verse 3 through 7. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now you know why. Because you can do all those things and still try to do it for yourself to try to get God to accept you. And if that's your motivation, you can go to the martyr's fire and have nothing. Because you went to the martyr's fire to validate yourself before God. So it doesn't matter the sacrifice if the motivation is wrong. All right, now someone has described this in a way to, to make it hit home is where you see the word love, put your name. It's painful. Um, love is patient. Jared is patient and kind. Jared does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Rejoices with the truth. Jared bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When you put your name there, it hurts. Because I'm thinking, I'm not that. I'm not that. These are actions that fleshed out someone who's not living for themselves. Who knows the beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of His love. And so, because of that love of God that is their sustenance, that is their nourishment... They no longer have to seek their own. Why on earth am I going to seek my own when I have it all in Christ? I can now take my life and pour it out for someone else. When I have this love of Christ, I can be patient and I be 
can be kind because I'm not having to force my way anymore so that I will feel better about life. That things went my way and when things didn't go my way, I'm now impatient. I don't have to envy or boast. I'm not arrogant because I know that there is nothing in me to be boastful or arrogant in. That all I have is nourished of Jesus Christ, His love, and the fact that He calls me Father instead of Judge. It nourishes me. You see how this works? It flows out of the love of God. Now, we keep on reading. Joy. Joy. It's the word, uh, the Greek word kara, uh, very close to the word charis, which is the word grace. They, I, I think it's meant to be similar. Uh, grace and joy. Paul in Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. All right, in other words, it's not about your personal convictions, is what Romans 14 was about. Sometimes we think we want to define church, those people that we are hanging out with, as those who have the same personal convictions as us. But instead, he says, no, church is not that. Church is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The church is made up of those people who know that their only righteousness they have is in Jesus Christ. Not on their own. The joy that they have is found in Jesus Christ that God has forgiven them and they never get over that. And the joy of the Lord is their strength. It is the peace that comes from the fact that they have peace with God in the Spirit of God. It's not just because we all believe the right things about the Bible. It's not because we all dress the same way. It's not because we all have the same diet. That's a very shallow definition of church. He says, no, we are united by the Spirit of Christ in righteousness, in peace, and in joy. So those who have come to experience God's grace, as Paul did, know that by standing firm in their faith, they can continue to celebrate the Christian life as a festival of joy. Because of what Christ has done. That's why we never get over the cross. That's why we are always looking at the glory of the gospel. And it becomes a daily delight for us to find our sustenance in Jesus Christ and what he's done. So we are rejoicing in God's salvation, show our affections are rightly placed in God's will and his purpose, not the circumstances around us. Okay? So joy is not just the absence of difficulty. All right? It's not just the absence of adverse situations. Joy is not based in situations. It's based in the fact that you get your identity from God. You're nursed by Him. Peace, very similar. It's not the absence of strife, violence, or warfare. Peace is not the absence. Sometimes we think, okay, there's no fighting. We've got peace. It's a lot different from that. It is, in fact, the word peace implies, implies a, a whole welfare, all right? This, how's your, how's the welfare of you? What's the state of you? How's it described? Peace is that wholeness aspect of it, that it is well with your soul, with your heart, with your mind before God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how peace doesn't it doesn't ever flow past the cross. It doesn't ever flow past what Jesus Christ has done. It, in fact, flows from. 
And that's why every day we have to get in our heart and mind to say that the success of this day has already been won because God sees me as right before Him. And the rest of this day is just carrying out that victory of what God has done in our lives. And that brings peace. So that even in adverse situations, when your spouse and you are fighting, praise God I'm right with God. All right? Praise God that at least I am right with God and that I don't have to try to manipulate this person to make myself feel better about life. That's usually often how fights begin between two people. Is You want to use the other person for your own benefit. That has been stolen away because God said, I've done it. I've met your need. All right? So even in the midst of eternal interpersonal strife, there still is peace because of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Patience. Patience is the quality of, of taking everything in good and in good part not to be easily offended. Um, it's, it's the ability. It's the ability to put up with other people. All right? You know how to get along with others. And patience is knowing how to get along with others when it's not easy to do. All right? You've got that ability. Uh, it's amazing. I, I have paid attention to uh, the pastoral epistles, the uh, Timothys, the Tituses, uh, where it's especially given instructions to teachers and, and pastors. And I have been amazed at how many times when it says, be a teacher, right thereafter, or close by, it usually is be patient. Be patient. All right? I found that to be true. If you want to teach people, you can't do it unless you're patient. Unless you're able to get along with people who are not easy to get along. Because you would say to them, if you would just do this, it would be right. If you would just stop it. <laughs> we have a running joke sometimes of uh, some of us. Uh, you know, someone comes up with a, a problem. We just, well, just stop it. Just stop doing that. You'll be all right. You know, uh, there is a desire within us just to say, all right, it's not as complicated as you make it out to be. Either you believe God or you don't. All right, you, you trust Him and do it, or you don't. But there's this, this patience that's required. It shows that, that, that Christians are following God's plan and timetable rather than their own. And they've abandoned their own ideas about how uh, life should work. All right? You've abandoned your own timetables and your own expectations about how life should work and you're adopting God's. Patience. Patience. Kindness. Kindness it means show goodness, generosity, sympathy toward others. Um, Romans 2.4 is interesting. It says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I have been amazed that when God has done work in my life and bringing me to repentance, when I have been hard-hearted in my sin and I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway, it comes with it a dread of God. I don't want to talk to God. For the same reason I didn't want to tell my parents when I did something wrong. What, what's going to happen if I tell my parents something wrong? I mean, there's going to be consequences. I could deal with the consequences. The part was the lecture that got me. Because the lecture wouldn't stop. I think it only stopped when they got tired. And they would tell me the same thing. I was like, I don't want to tell them. You know, 
I don't want to tell Matt. I'm just going to hear this lecture forever. And I have taken that same mentality and applied it to God. Applied it to God. I've done wrong. I don't want to talk to him. If I talk to him, I'm going to owe up and it's going to be bad. I'm going to have to have confession. I'm going to have to do all this repentance. And my heart's not in it. I don't want to have to listen to the lecture. But you know what God does instead? I've found in my life numerous times that when I'm in that state, God has done something in my life that day that I can't explain. I can think of all kinds of reasons for God to give me a bad day. Instead, he'll do something like have someone ask me about how to be saved. And all the while thinking, you kidding me? I'm telling you about how to be saved. I'm not fit to tell you about that. Or some work that God has in store for me. And I think, God, how can you do that? And it comes back to me. My good day never got me to be with God in the first place. My good day never did that. It wasn't because I had such a a righteous attitude that God saved me to begin with. It was the grace of God. And what I'm seeing in that moment in time is another example of God's grace in kindness. And in the kindness, I'm overwhelmed by God. And God stills my heart again, not because He's lecturing to me, but because He stills my heart and gives me goodness instead and treats me in ways I don't deserve. And I think, God, forgive me for being such a rotten child to you and not believing in you, the goodness of my Lord. I think about this verse so many times in that moment. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Sometimes some of you go through life and you know you could have died at some point in your life. You think, God saved my life. Yes, He did. He gave you goodness and grace and kindness. He gave you what you did not deserve so that you would see the richness of God's grace and repent. The fact that every single one of you still are breathing right now is nothing but the kindness of God to bring you to Him. And the thing is, is that you've just presumed upon that and you think, well, God was going to give me that anyway. I'm entitled to that because I'm alive. That's our arrogance. That's our arrogance. The kindness of God. But kindness is not just sentimentality, all right? In fact, Romans 11.22, we see that there's the severity of God and the kindness of God together. He says, uh, Romans 11.22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In the same way that God has been kind to you, that spirit is to be displayed to others. A kindness. How do I treat this person in the same way that God's treated you with kindness? God, God didn't need these lists. He just is these things. We're the ones who need this list. All right? We're the ones who get confused about what is good and what is wrong. What is sin, what is lack of faith. So this is given for our benefit, for us to know what God is like. Faithfulness. 
simply doing what one says they will do, they will be counted as reliable and trustworthy. Why? Because that's how God is. And His Spirit is in you. He is trustworthy and He will help us to do these things. Uh, we keep on reading, we see uh, gentleness. Gentleness, this is how Jesus described Himself in Matthew 11, verse 29. I'm, I'm gentle. Gentle and lowly in spirit. Take, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle. All right. It's, it's the idea that it or enables people to find rest in Christ and to encourage and strengthen others. It, it connotates a submissive and teachable spirit toward God. A submissive and teachable spirit toward God. It shows itself in humility and consideration toward others. Unfortunately, our definition of gentle is kind of this mamby-pamby type of person. They don't have a backbone to them. They're just really gentle. You know, I don't want to offend you. That's kind of the image we've got. And it's a wrong image. It, it's really more of, of like meekness, of strength under control. It is not a lack of power or a lack of strength of any stretch, but it is understanding that there is a governor in our life, that there is a check in our life, that we are teachable before God and submissive toward Him. It is being harnessed by the loving service and respectful actions. Self-control. This is mastery of our desires and passions. I think it should be last, it is last on this list for, for a reason. Because our tendency is, alright, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, I'm gonna do that with self-control. I'm gonna do that with self-control. So this is last. Alright? Because he, he, you need to understand, he's not saying I'm gonna give you all these things and oh bam, it's back on you now. No, it's not back on us, all right? Here's the idea. Self-control, first of all, the desire to do this is from God. I had one teacher in college that had written on the board um, uh, as an English teacher. Imagine, I, I took English classes. Can you believe that? Um, but he had on the board, um, discipline is passion. Discipline is passion. In other words... The desire that's in your heart that reigns over lesser desires, okay, comes out in discipline. Desire that's in your heart that reigns over lesser desires, it, it comes out in discipline. Paul said it in this way in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it. To receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Alright, so it's it's a, a passion that's been born in us by the grace of God. Okay? By the grace of God and the Spirit of God that sheds abroad His love in our heart. And so we start... Having that desire overwhelm the desires of our flesh. Someone has said, you know, they compared walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh by describing two dogs. So I've got a white dog and I have a black dog. And they like to fight. And the question is, well, who's going to win that fight? Which the dog I feed the most is going to win that fight. The spirit of God is in your life. There is also the flesh in your life. But that which you nourish... That which you feed upon is the one that's going to be the stronger one that's in your life. 
And so, knowing in these examples of the Spirit working on us, let's look at the action of the Spirit working on us. It says, against such things there is no law. If you do these things, then the law cannot condemn us. And Romans 8, 4 says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, you walk in the Spirit of God is walking in love, which is the Spirit of the law. So, verse 24, the action of the Spirit working on us. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Very similar to Galatians 2.20, but one notable difference, all right? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. All right, English students, passive. Passive. I have been crucified. It's been done to me, all right? But notice what it says here. It's different. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Okay? In other words, there's something we're doing here. I have been crucified. God's done it to me. The judgment of my sin has been executed, satisfied with Jesus Christ, and I've been satisfied with Him, or I've been uh, crucified with Him. And now, because it has been done, I myself am crucifying myself. Jesus said it this way, Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let me explain it this way. Uh, um, a week ago, we went to this Eno River Festival. Um, really enjoyed it, but it's, it's a hippie fest, all right? Um, and it kind of concerned me that I liked it. Um, but uh, I enjoyed it. It was good. And, and one of these things they had was pottery. And so they let your children do the potter's will. And so um, the girls did that. And I, I just watched it. And um, the way they did it, they, they got the little clay and they put it on the will. And, but then there was a, a, a master potter across from them. And so in making this, this pot, the hands of the girls were guided by the master potter. She said, she literally put her hands on top of her hands. And as she pushed their finger, they responded and bent and allowed their fingers to be moved and manipulated by the master potter in creating this pot. And I'm thinking, you know, I wonder what their desires are. What would they do left unto themselves? How would their fingers go? What would the pot look like? I, I imagine there's a part of you that just want to squishes it, you know, and watch it go as high as it can, you know? I mean, there's... Wouldn't you do that? I don't know. I kind of want to do that. But it was guided by the presence of the master potter. It required the students to believe the master potter was there, to believe that the pastor, master potter knew how to move the best way and required a willingness not to do their own desires, but to respond to the master potter. What you've got here is Paul describing what it's like to have your fingers conforming to the fingers of the Spirit of God in your life. He says... First, because of the grace of God, has won your heart over. You love that master potter. 
You want the master potter's presence in your life. You desire it. And not only do you desire that, you desire a pot that reflects God. So your heart's won over. And then because of the cross of Christ, the Spirit of God can be in your life. So the master potter is there. Now, you can't see him, so what does that require? Faith. That's why you're saved by faith. Saved by the grace of God through faith. That's why only thing that matters is faith working through love. So every day, I believe God saved me. I believe I am as right as I'm ever going to be before God. Despite all the wrong that I've done, that's satisfied. It's taken care of. It's not even brought up anymore. He's my father, not my judge anymore. And I believe that the Spirit of God is there in my life. I trust in that. And I believe that the Spirit of God wants to work in me to the pleasure of God. I trust in that. And I believe that He is capable of doing that. And I believe that He is working through the circumstances of life. I believe that He's working through people around me. And I certainly believe that He's working through the Word of God in my life. And I can't explain it, nor can I explain the seed, how it burst out with a vine stuck in the ground with dirt and water. But there's something supernatural and powerful about this. The Spirit of God in our life. And so, verse 25 If we live by the Spirit, in other words, indicative statement, if this is true, if this is, if you believe this, then walk by the Spirit. It's a, it's a different verb than the one in verse 16. It's to, to walk behind the leader, to keep in step, don't get out of line, to say, if you believe the Spirit of God is in your life, then don't step out of the Spirit's leading. Don't Grieve Him. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This means that walking by the Spirit is not something we do in order to get the Spirit's help, but rather, just as this phrase implies, it's something we do by the enabling of the Spirit. Alright? In other words, I don't make a pot so I can get the Master Potter's help. I'm making the pot by the Master Potter's help. I don't do love, I don't do joy, I don't do hope, or do patience so that I can get the Spirit of God working in my life. No, that comes as a result of the Spirit of God working in my life. My main focus is, okay, I feel that finger, press this finger. I, I, I sense the Spirit of God in the Word of God and pressing on my heart to be burdened this way or to do this, to, to listen or to pray or to give. I sense the conviction. I confess. I repent. I feel my focus is on the Spirit of God. That's why it's we're saved by relationship, not by ideas. We're saved by relationship. Second Corinthians three seventeen verse eighteen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You remember, we're not we're not under a judge anymore. We're under a Father. There's freedom there, and we all, with unveiled face, behold, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Alright? For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's compared the Old Testament law versus the New Testament and the Gospel. How are we saved? How are we changed? You see that in verse 18? How are we changed? How is it we're changing from one degree of glory to another? How are we becoming more Christ-like? How is it there's more fruit of the Spirit in our life? How does it happen? By beholding the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That is why I'm telling you, every day of your life, nourish your attitude, your heart, your mind, and what Jesus Christ has done for you because you see the glory of the Lord. And by that contemplation, by making that the source of your heart, the source of your dinner, to say my greatest delight is what Jesus Christ has done for me, not whether or not I made this amount of money at the end of the month. If I have that delight, this passage is telling me the Spirit of God is using it, using the Word of God to help me to see the glory of the Lord. And by seeing the glory of the Lord through the Word of God by the Spirit of the Lord, I'm changed into the glory of the Lord. You get this? You understand what I'm saying? There's a mystic aspect to this, but there's also a very clear direction that's found in this as well. And verse 26 Transition to what he's going to talk about next chapter. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. <laughs> we talked about this already in the works of the flesh. When you have a group of folks that are conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, when that is their, their drive, it's what they don't have because someone else has it, it's going to implode and explode. When that's your family, it's going to crumble. The Spirit of God is doing this. Let me just give you some steps here in walking by the Spirit. One, acknowledge. Acknowledge that God is there. Acknowledge that apart from the Spirit of God, you can do nothing. John 15, 5 says this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Romans 7, 18. I know that in me, that in my flesh dwells no good thing. Acknowledge that. To say, this day is not going to get better because I'm better. All right? Can you do that? I can do that. I can say this day is not going to get better because I'm going to be better. Acknowledge that. Second, pray. Pray. I think like Hebrews 13, 21. Pray. It says, The God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Can you pray, God, will you work in my heart that which is pleasing in your sight to make his desire your desire? To pray that that prayer is the dependence of God. It is, it's like putting that, that, that seed in the ground. You don't know how it's going to work, but you believe it works. You put the seed in the ground. You don't know how your life's going to be changed, but you know it's going to be changed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so you pray. You do, because God works through this. And so, with that prayer, third, trust. This is faith. This is faith. This is where we saw in Galatians 5, 6, all that counts is faith working through love. There must be this faith. You believe this. You trust in this. And then, fourth, you act. You act. This is not step number one. All right? Sometimes we do step number one. It's not step number one. It's one of the last things you do. You act. You walk by the Spirit. After you acknowledge your helplessness, you've prayed for His enablement, you've trusted in His deliverance to act the way you know is right. And then, only after appearing, appealing to the Spirit, we now work with all our mind. You get tired. You pour out your strength. You pour out your energy. You act. Only acting with spiritual preparation. So when it's all said and done, you know that it's God doing it. So that's the last thing, the last step, is thanking God. Thanking God. 
He's thanking God for any virtue that's been done. If there's any love in your life, if there's any joy in your life, if there's any patience, if there's any kindness, you know that if it was up to you, you would be nothing but an envying, lying, prideful person. And if you don't agree with that, you've got to go back to step number one. All right? You thank God. You thank God. If there's anything good in my life, it's because God's goodness put it there. He's doing that in me. 2 Corinthians 8, 16, Paul says, Thanks be to God who put the same earnest care for you into the hearts of Titus. So he says, Titus really cares about you. Where did that come from? Paul says, that came from God. That came from God to have that concern for someone else and thank God for him. So what I'm appealing to you is that if you indeed live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. There's a potter in your life. Believe he's there. Make your focus not on the pot. Don't focus on the pot. Focus on what the potter's doing. Stay sensitive. So that when sin comes in your life, I've shared with you before, your main grief is not, oh, I've done it again. When am I going to get it right? I can't believe I did this again. That's not it. It's not, oh my goodness, I'm going to get judged. That's not it either. What is the focus of someone who's sinned in life? Well, if their heart's been stolen in love for God, then it's, God, I grieved you. I grieved you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I don't want to cause grief in your life. You're my master potter. You're my savior. You're my God, my father, who's given me such great love. I'm going to tell you, when you have a heart like that, it's amazing the fruit that comes. Let's pray.